The following sermon was delivered on March 7th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled Last Day's Madness on 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. The modern church is inundated today with what I refer to as last day's madness. You're aware of last day's madness. Uh, every new event uh, that takes place in the broader culture uh, is a sign of the times that Jesus' second coming is just around the corner. We've had it with Russia and Russian invasions and Russian tanks. We've had it with the Gulf Wars. And uh, most recently, we've had it with COVID. And every one of these things, according to these prophets, are signs of the end times right before Jesus returns. In fact, it's been a great cottage industry as well. The problem with that is that it takes our eyes off the purposes of Scripture. Purposes of warnings like this warning that is before us this evening. Because the warnings in Scripture, the last day statements in Scripture we'll see, are not so that we can speculate about when Christ is coming. In fact, we've been told not to do that. No, they're to help us live right now where we are, as they help these hearers live right then in the 60s AD. They are for our comfort, the Bible says, for our instruction, for our repentance. And so we want to see then what is here for us today. Recognize that was for the church 2,000 years ago as well. It wasn't something that was tucked away for the prognosticators of the end times to use in our own time. Now, as we look at this text, I want you to keep in mind the importance of, of the sufficiency of Scripture to govern all of life and to teach us the means of God's grace. Now, you see where we are in the flow. Chapter 1, Paul has instructed Timothy about these false teachers and deals there with the importance of sound doctrine. Chapters 2 and 3, he deals with the structuring of the church from corporate worship to men leading in worship and to the role of women in the church. And in chapter 3 then, structuring the church first in terms of the qualifications of elders and deacons and then uh, purpose of the book itself, the key purpose stated there that Timothy would know how to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the pillar and support of truth. And that's for all of us. And then he gives the summary of that truth in the text that we considered uh, two weeks ago, uh, verse 16, this great statement of the incarnation by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. But notice that verse 4 begins with the word, but. So what Paul's going to do, now, verse 1 of chapter 4, what Paul's going to do here now is, is begin to instruct the ministers of the church how they're to deal both with error and truth in the church. And the but is significant because we've just been told that the church is the pillar and support of truth with this great gospel summary, but there's something else that's going on. And as we'll see, is going on in every era of the history of the church and will until Christ returns. 
So our text, verses 1 through 5, where the Spirit is uh, teaching us that we're to beware of destructive heresy of ascetic legalism as we are to make a proper use of God's gifts. To beware of the destructive heresy of ascetic legalism as we make proper use of God's good gifts. I want to point two things out to you. The solemn warning and the liberating doctrine. The warnings given to us in the first three and a half verses. And Paul begins by showing us that this he has this by direct revelation of God. But the Spirit explicitly says. Now what's Paul talking about here? Is he saying that he has received this message from the Spirit? That he's to pass on to them? No, he's talking about something that, of which they should be aware. He's talking actually about the Scriptures. That the Spirit of Christ has testified to the church in the Scriptures about these various problems that are going to arise in the life of the church. Paul's following a pattern here that we see both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The pattern of often quotations to Scriptures are referred to as uh, the Spirit saying. The writer of the Hebrews often does this in chapter 3, again in chapter 9 and 10. Uh, he quotes uh, Psalm 95, 7 in chapter 3, 7 of Hebrews. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and quotes then this verse from the Psalms. Paul is the same thing in, in Acts 28, as the Jews harden themselves and leave, he says, as the Spirit says in the prophet Isaiah. So it's a way to refer to that which is in Scripture. Now, what particularly Scripture does Paul have in mind? Well, there are a number of cases uh, that testify then to the New Testament as Scripture. For example, Matthew 24, verses 10 through 11. At that time, this is our Savior prophesying, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and mislead many. By the time Paul wrote this letter to Timothy at Ephesus, Matthew was, the Gospel of Matthew was in existence. The Spirit explicitly said here in the Gospel of Matthew. Paul's own writings, Colossians 2, 20-23, which he would have written right around this time, uh, where Paul deals in uh, with uh, the Spirit's teaching. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch the Spirit reproving those uh, false uh, doctrines. Um, Peter, in 2 Peter 3.3, 3, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after on lust. So I'm skipping really ahead now to, to this uh, next point, that the Spirit says... He's talking about Scripture. And it tells us about Paul's view of Scripture. Notice that it's in the present tense, the Spirit says. So in the first place, according to Paul, it was the Spirit, through the Spirit, that God gave us Scripture. Paul himself will say in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, the breathing out of God as it is the breath of God, the Spirit of God then speaking to us uh, through uh, Scripture. And uh, Timothy, uh, Peter says in 2 Peter 1.20, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For prophecy was uh, never made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So Paul is teaching us 
And the Spirit is teaching us that the Spirit is the one who inspired the writers of Scripture. So just as the uh, Christ and the apostles confirmed the 39 books of the Old Testament, we see Paul and Peter here confirming the very reality of this work of the Holy Spirit and giving to us uh, the Scriptures of the New Testament. This was Paul's doctrine of Scripture. It was given by the Holy Spirit. You could say the Bible says, you could say uh, Matthew wrote, and you can say the Spirit says about anything that you read in the Scriptures and in the New Testament. Now we know that the Scriptures have been completed. This also tells us something now about our approach to the Spirit's message. We're to expect no new messages from the Spirit of the triune God. This work is completed for us in our Bibles. But what I want you to understand tonight, the Spirit speaks to us through the Scripture. No other way. But He does speak to us through Scripture. And when you're reading your Bible, boys and girls, when you read your Bible, you need to understand it's the Spirit of God who speaks to you in Scripture. As we approach our reading of the Bible in family worship or in private reading, and particularly Lord, uh, in corporate worship, preaching, uh, reading and preaching, we're to do so in an absolute dependence upon the Spirit of God. He who gave these words speaks to us through them, but we must have His illumination to hear the voice of God in Scripture. And so Paul lays down here, simply really in passing, these few simple words, the Spirit explicitly says... And that's how you approach the Bible. The Spirit explicitly says. So what is this warning then that the Spirit gives to us in Scripture, repeated here now by the Apostle Paul? That in later times, some will fall away from the faith. Now we come to the crux of this passage. When are or will be the later times? Of course, the last day madness people say, well, this is the time, the end times, right before Christ returns. But that's not the way the Bible uses this language. Now, this is particular form is only found here. We often find, though, the last days, latter times, last days, they are parallel. And the, the phrase refers to the age in which you and I live. It is the age between the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and His second coming. We are in the last days. This is made clear, for example, uh, Isaiah 2.2. It will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream into it. So Isaiah is prophesying of the age of the new covenant, when Christ will gather the nations uh, into the church. Now think of Peter's use of this phrase, uh, in Acts 2, 16 and 17, as he uh, quotes uh, Joel chapter 3 to explain what's happened on the day of Pentecost. And that prophecy begins, and in the last days. And what does Peter say? Today, this has been fulfilled in your sight. The last days are the days of the new covenant church between the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and his return. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? What? <laughs> What use would this be to the church in Timothy's day if Paul's writing about something's going to take place at this point 2,000 years later? It's useless. But the Scriptures are for the church in every age and for the comfort of the church. 
And even those particular prophecies, such as the destruction of Jerusalem, of which we read in Matthew 24, has fulfillment uh, in 70 AD. The principles laid out there apply to us throughout the age until Christ returns. So what he's saying is, is that the church should live with the realistic understanding that in every age of the church, some will fall away from the faith. The word faith here refers to that, uh, that the orthodox gospel. And Paul's saying it's going to be a reality throughout the history of the church that some, it's indefinite, the indefinite shows us this is going to happen again throughout the age of the church, will fall away from the faith of the gospel. The Apostle John refers to that in 1 John chapter 2, that they've left us. Many have left us because they were not of us. Now, as Paul saying here that some can fall away from the faith, that Christians can lose their salvation. Not at all. You compare Scripture with Scripture. Absolutely impossible for the one who is converted to be taken out of the hands of the triune God. But he is realistically warning us that there will always be in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ those who think they are converted or who know they're not but remain within the pale of the church. And when they fall away, we think of Christ's parable, the stony ground hearers and uh, the worldly hearers. And when they fall away, it's not that they have lost their salvation, but as John says, they simply manifested who they really are. But friends, it's a solemn warning. It's something that the Spirit would have each of you think about tonight as you're here. It's possible to deceive yourself. You can know all the right answers. Uh, you can uh, have made some public profession of faith. You could have walked the aisle or whatever. But you must examine yourself. You look for the fruit of the gospel in your life. And understand that always within the church there are going to be those who are deceived, and as we'll see, deceiving. So as you sit here tonight, we're going to talk more about conscience, but in your conscience, look to God and be sure you are resting in Christ alone for your salvation and that the Spirit of Christ is testifying to you by His promises and by His work in your life that you are converted, not part of the some who will... And we've all known them, haven't we? Probably you, like me, we've had close friends who walked with us for some period of time in the church. And now they're gone. They walked away. This is the warning as Paul begins it. Some, the Spirit warns us, in the days of the New Testament church will fall away from the faith. And what are they doing? He says they're paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. Now here Paul shows us the origin of all false doctrine. It's hell. He gives two phrases here, doesn't he? He calls this false teaching uh, that of deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. The one who lied in the garden to Adam and Eve has continued to lie throughout the history of the church. 
And his factory is manufacturing every form of error and false religion and false worship so as to corrupt the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the furnaces of heaven, uh, like those evil furnaces in uh, the Lord of the Rings, are belching out evil things used for destruction. We begin to get a pathology now of heresy in this. And the origin of it is always going to be from the devils. As we'll see, he uses men and women to articulate these doctrines, but they're doctrines out of hell. And we have to distinguish as we talk about these things. There are places where Bible-believing, serious Christians will disagree. Not, not many, but a few. A baptism, uh, what we sing in worship, church government. These would be some things that would not fall into this category because we're also all fallible men and women. And only when we get to heaven we realize that I have all the correct answers. We're all going to be Presbyterians in heaven. But anyway, uh, because we're fallible, we're going to make mistakes. We plead with the, the Spirit of the Lord to open our eyes to know His truth. We, we plead and we pray together that we'll come closer and closer together. But that's because our hearts are right. We want to know the truth. We want to walk in the truth. But these doctrines that come out of hell, these are doctrines that want to corrupt the truth, to set up a new standard. Well, the agents then, those both who fall and those who prompt the falling, we're told, uh, as Paul continues, by means of the hypocrisy of liars. Now, this is referring particularly to the false teachers. Notice the two terms that identify them. They're liars. Not always knowingly liars, but they do know that what they're teaching is not the truth that's been received by the church of the Lord God. And so in that way, they're lying, and that's their hypocrisy. And as Paul used another language, they sneaked in amidst us to spy us out that they might introduce their false teaching. There are people in the church in every generation. Paul told the, uh, this church at Ephesus it was going to happen to them in, in Acts chapter 20. And now he has to write Timothy because it has happened just as he said it would happen. And every church and every denomination must stand on guard for these people who get these wicked doctrines from the devil, not knowingly, but who become convinced themselves of their superiority, and then they worm their way. And they would never let you know they were teaching doctrines contrary to the church. No, they will come under the guise of orthodoxy. They will come in under a good reputation because they're sneaking in like the devil through the snake in the garden. Our denomination's full of them. We've got churches in Greenville, South Carolina, as far as I'm concerned, that's got them. People that want to pervert the Reformed doctrines of our denomination. But notice how a false teacher gets there. This is really the frightening part of Paul's warning. These who come by the hypocrisy of lies seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 19, the apostle deals with the importance of conscience in maintaining the faith. And he says to Timothy, 
Uh, Keep the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck. Now he's coming back to them. Now remember the conscience is that, that thing that God has placed within us when he created us in his image. Initially, his law was written on our hearts, and that was the regulator, the, the testifier to the conscience. And even after the fall, although it's perverted, there's still that remnant of that law, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2. And that is the conscience that speaks to people, judging their actions by that remnant of God's law. Then in the church, that remnant of God's law is, is being corrected and informed and strengthened by the word of God. Now, these are men that have been in the church. So it's not simply the conscience now of the natural man. It's the conscience of men and women who are sitting under the word of God. Now, how do you sear your conscience? Well, the word here is cauterize. Back when medicine was a little more barbaric than it is now, uh, one of the ways that you would uh, help heal a person, you cut their leg off, you would cauterize the wound because that branding iron would kill all the nerve endings there and it would eventually take away the pain. That's what happens, boys, when you brand uh, a steer. You put your mark on that steer and that cauterizes the flesh, kills the nerves right there at that point, and of course you've made that steer your steer. Now how do you cauterize your conscience? How do you deaden it? This is very serious. You deaden it by saying no to every conviction, every warning of Scripture. Every time conscience agrees with the preacher, our conscience is spoken to by the Word of God, and you are exposed in some sin or some wrong understanding of the Word of God, and you say, I'm not going to change, I'm not going to believe that. You're hardening your conscience. You're searing it. The nerve endings are being killed until suddenly the conscience is dead. Never completely dead. But it's dead enough that you then will pursue a course of sin. And that's why it's so important. You're convicted of sin. Don't. Don't hide it. Don't gloss over it. And don't get angry with God or the person who has brought God's truth to you. But humble yourself for there's only two ways. If you're convicted of sin, either you humble yourself under that and your conscience flourishes. Or you'll harden yourself under it. And the conscience will be cauterized. Well, see, false teachers are those. Well, you know, this was sin. You know, if Satan, if Satan came to you right now and tested you to go commit adultery or take up drug habit or rob a bank, oh, that's stupid. I know better than that. He knows better than that too. He doesn't come there with that. He comes here with very subtle. Temptations, little subtle ways to compromise, subtle ways to say no to the teaching of God. And the more you then harden yourself against those subtle prickings of the Spirit of Christ, the more you harden your conscience, the more you cauterize it. Till then, you will commit the heinous sin. You will deny great truths of the gospel. And rarely can you divorce those two things. In most cases, when people apostatize, and they'll say it's a matter of... Uh, Intellect or doctrine, it's usually a matter of morality. 
But it's not these false teachers. No, they're proud. And they're simply one in a following. And thus, they sneak in. Now, these particular ones that are creating problems in Ephesus are teaching an ascetic legalism. Paul says they're forbidding marriage and advocating abstaining from foods. Now, this comes out of this uh, dualistic understanding that plagued the early church. It came out of Platonism and then Neoplatonism and Montanism um, that uh, spirit things were good and material things were evil. And in the process of these things throughout the century, people like uh, the Montanists then advocated against marriage. It, that's good, they die out. Um, there was a, a group of, of Anabaptists in England in the days of the Westminster Assembly that advocated against marriage. And of course, we're all familiar with the Roman Catholic Church advocating against marriage. Paul says that is a doctrine out of hell. That's what these people are teaching. And then Paul, as you read him, often has to deal with these food issues, whether it's the Jewish legalists that are telling the Gentile converts they can only eat kosher food, or whether it's those that are upset because you went down to the market and bought a, a piece of beef that had come from the temple, and everybody was forbidding people to eat different kinds of meat. So those, and again, that is carried on throughout the church, and again, it's carried on through the Roman church through centuries Meatless Fridays under the guise of uh, fish. We're now at Lent, and uh, I can't believe, can you believe the, the Presbyterian and Baptist churches that are practicing Lent? A pagan Roman Catholic superstition. A ascetic legalism. You humble yourself, you, you do without, and then the whole thing is you're going to get grace out of that. That's what Paul's dealing with here. Ascetic legalism gives these two issues because they were the two that were readily at hand. But now, stop and think about it. Paul's talking about people falling from the faith. But now, these doctrines don't necessarily attack the faith at its core values, do they? He's not, at this point, attacking the Trinity or the atonement of Christ, or really at this point, not necessarily attacking justification by faith alone. No, we could say that they were third or fourth level errors, not, not right, the most serious foundational truths. What's the relationship? Paul, our, our Jesus explains it to us in Mark chapter 7, as he deals with some of the legalistic observances of the Jews. And he begins by saying in verse 8, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So it first caused you to neglect the commandment of God. Then he says, you invalidate, your traditions invalidate the word of God. And finally, he, uh, he concludes by saying that, uh, no, he concludes by saying that it, next it sets aside the commandment of God and then it invalidates the word of God. So look what's happening. Neglecting, setting aside, Invalidating. Do you see what legalistic, ascetic traditions do to the authority of the Bible? Maybe you haven't thought about this. We live in a hotbed of this stuff here in where we live in upstate South Carolina. And we have well-meaning people 
We're building these fences to help all of us become more holy. Do not taste. Do not touch. Do not drink alcohol. Do not smoke tobacco. Do not go to a movie. Do not do this. Do not do that. And what's shocking is that when you get to know these people, they have little care about the Sabbath, about personal holiness, because they have neglected and then invalidated the Word of God with their traditions. And what I want you to understand is that the horror, and we come to the matter of conscience, particularly in Christian liberty, the horror of people, of Christian teachers dictating to you what you may and may not do, divorced from what the Word of God tells you that you should or should not do. It's serious. And because of its seriousness, the sufficiency of Scripture is corrupted, and that's what lays the foundation then for other more serious false doctrines. But even here, if I'm more holy by not marrying or by not eating certain foods, am I contributing in some way to my acceptance with God? Am I improving my relationship with God? Will God be more happy with me if I do these things? This is the solemn warning that Paul is giving to us. The danger of the false teaching of ascetic legalism. It's going to go on throughout the history of the church. and There are always going to be those who fall away. In contrast, just the position, he talks about the liberating doctrine, the doctrine of Christian liberty, beginning in 3b, abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. He's first establishes the doctrine that these things that people are forbidding, particularly the food, the, the antecedent of the which uh, here would be more particularly food, but bringing along any of these ideas, such as marriage or whatever, these are things that God created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. So now he sets this, this contrast. These very things that people are saying you may not do, don't touch, don't taste, or whatever, are things created by God. That's the first thing that Paul wants you to see. Notice what he goes on in verse 4. Everything created by God is good. So we start with Ecclesiastes, these good gifts of God. Or we go there to Psalm 144 and see that God has given to us uh, crops and herds and, and these great things in creation. Uh, therefore, our good and they have been provided for us by God, who, when he created all things, said they were very good. Look, God is not an ascetic. Far from it. He's a perfect spirit. But he created colors and texture and taste and music and friendships. Well, in the Trinity, we well understood friendships. But all these things he created for our enjoyment and pleasure in his presence. That's what Paul is telling us here. And so we think about marriage, of course. We can go back to Genesis chapter 2, that God created marriage as a good thing uh, for one man and one woman. 
And uh, Solomon tells us in uh, Proverbs that uh, it is a blessed privilege, that intimate relationship of marriage. It is a pleasure created by God, thus to be enjoyed in the way that God appointed it. And of course, the same is true with respect to food. We go back to what God said after the flood. He says to Noah, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. You might want to be a vegetarian or a vegan or whatever out of your own personal preferences. But don't ever make it an issue of conscience. God gave us meat to eat. and We may do so, as we'll see, to his glory. So this is that positive doctrine of Christian liberty. Everything that God has created is good and is to be gratefully shared in. But notice the two qualifiers, by those who believe and know the truth. Now, in a sense, they're for all of God's creatures. But what the Spirit is showing you here is, is that only as the adopted children of God do you legitimately and lawfully use all of these pleasures. They're ours as Christians to revel in and to enjoy. And then this knowledge of truth, he's really saying that as you grow in your Christian maturity, you're going to grow in your experience of the joy of God's good gifts. Again, notice the contrast. These false teachers were saying that by abstaining from these things, you'll make yourself more holy. But what does Paul say? It is only as you are more holy that you can really enjoy these things. And this is the Bible's doctrine of Christian liberty summarized in the Confession of Faith, chapter 20, paragraph 2. God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word and besides it in matters of faith and worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience. So in other words, I said, you can, you can have your own preferences. Just don't impose them on me. To do this out of conscience is to betray the true liberty of conscience. And the requirement of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. So that's the first part of what Paul is saying here. But then he moves on to how then are we to use these things? And this is important as well, because particularly when people come to understand the doctrine of Christian liberty, it's often abused then, because uh, i got to let my freak flag fly. Uh, I now can do these things. We had a, a student live with us in California, and he um, actually was a graduate of Bob Jones, and he had a long list of, of do's and don'ts. And, um, but he called me one night, mm, a few years later, said, Dr. P, you know what I'm doing right now? I'm drinking a glass of whiskey. I says, well, that's okay, but you better be sure that you're careful about it now, you know? That's not something that you, uh, yes, you can accept God's good gifts, but you must guard your heart. And so often people then go overboard. So notice what Paul does now in uh, verse 5, or, um, verse 4 and 5, for everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. It's sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So to be received with gratitude is to exercise faith. We're getting back now to 
the conscience. Paul said that which is not of faith is sin. And so if your conscience tells you this thing is sin, even though the Bible says it's not a sin, but in your conscience you think it's a sin, you do not act against conscience. No, you seek to train your conscience. But don't ever act, never act against conscience. Now, conscience then is governed by the Word of God. And so he goes on to say, for these things, or this thing, is sanctified by means of the Word. You must be clear from the Word of God that you have this liberty. And God, through His Word, is going to govern the practice of that liberty. So, for example, the Bible clearly, in both Testaments, is strongly against immoderation, as we saw in 1 Timothy 3, and against drunkenness. And so immediately God has drawn a line between what he will say is legitimate use of the gift that he's given and the abuse of it. Or any other thing, uh, tobacco. The Bible doesn't say you don't use tobacco. The Bible says you're to be under no other master but the Lord God, addicted to no thing but the Spirit of Christ moving you in Scripture. And so we must... As these things are sanctified by the Word of God, we must have biblical warrant and our conscience trained, and we must always use them according to the Word of God. And then, sanctified by prayer. If you can, in good conscience, pray over it, then it's probably something that you can do. We are friends in Scotland. They have tea. They pray over it. They drink a glass of scotch, they pray over it. You see, they take this quite seriously, that this is a gift of God. If it's a gift of God, we sanctify it by prayer. If you can't pray over it, don't do it. That just means your conscience, either the Bible doesn't allow you to do it, or your conscience is not ready to do it. But if you can pray with thanksgiving, and this is why we pray at our meals now. So we turn right back to the food. We sit and we give thanks to God for this food. It's being sanctified then by prayer, the uses that God has appointed it. And we go back to we receive it with gratitude. And so we have Christian liberty, but we're not to abuse it. And so the confession goes on. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any lust, do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. And so very simply, we're to beware of the destructive heresy of ascetic legalism and all that it leads to as we make proper use of the good gifts of God. So as we wrap this up, you remember in the first place, then we're to be governed by God alone through His Word. We come back to the sufficiency of Scripture, nothing else. The Bible alone. Now, with the Bible alone is the Bible interpreted by our Reformed standards. That is the consensus of the church. The Bible interpreted by the Council of Nicaea or the Athanasian Creed. That's the consensus of the church. But it's still, the bottom line is governed by Scripture. So everything that you do, every decision that you make, you bring it back to the Word of God. And then notice, in contrast, what Paul says about the means of grace. These laws of men will not make you more holy. Now, there's the whole practice of mortification of the flesh. If you've got a sin problem and you seek to deal with things that 
in themselves are not wrong, but they're wrong for you, then you can grow. But if you abstain from them simply because others say they will make you more holy, Paul says, ain't so. Which directs our attention to the proper means of grace, which are the glorious things that Christ has appointed for us in his word, the word, the prayer, and sacraments. The word, yes, privately read and prayed over, family worship, but above all, corporate worship and preaching, and uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism. So we come now to the Lord's table. Here we see what our gracious Savior has given to us to mortify sin and to enable us to grow in godliness. Let us receive this then with thanksgiving because it has been consecrated by God. It has been given to us by our Savior in His Word, and it is for our well-being. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.